1: Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, a quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Brick Lane has loved the feedback from Final Word listeners. They're getting messages online and in person at their Melbourne Tap Room. Did you know they had a Melbourne Tap Room? It's at the Queen Vic Market. Details at BrickLaneBrewing.com Thanks for supporting our sponsor and for supporting the show. Adam and Jeff, and in some instances, Daniel Norcross, love doing the show. And your support of the show and of Brick Lane Brewing makes it all possible. And remember, you can order all of your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Now, let's say you're listening to this and you're thinking, I love the pod. I love Adam and Jeff. I even love Dan Norcross. But you don't drink. How about this? The best hoodie in the world is available in the merch section of the website. The Brick Lane hoodie has been my go-to in Melbourne for the last 12 months. It's roomy, it's comfy, and it's warm. It's perfect. And if you're thinking, don't need warm right now, things are starting to heat up where I am, well, there are plenty of t-shirts to choose from. The point of this is that there are plenty of ways to support The Final Word and Brick Lane Brewing. Just by listening to this, you're helping out. Thank you. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of The Final Word, and thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and The Final Word. I had to go about it.
2: This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, a cricket podcast that's about cricket and sometimes things other than cricket. A large show, uh Le Grand Show as they say in French today. We've got segments galore. We've got a couple of interviews on the show coming up today. We've got Shadi Khan Saif who has just got out of Kabul last night and is talking to us about Afghanistan and particularly cricket in Afghanistan and what the Taliban takeover might mean for the future of the game there. We've got Malcolm Conn on as well talking about Justin Langer, the Australian coach and his future uh, and we've got various other bits and pieces and uh, we also Importantly, have Adam Collins back, back from holiday, taking a glorious several days, uh, several several days, maybe maybe four, maybe five, (laughs) who knows? uh, Off from the world of doing cricket podcasting, and now back in the hot seat. Welcome back.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I think I was away for four nights uh, there in the west of Wales, which was about as short as you can say you've been on holiday for. If you've been away for two mm-hmm. or three nights, you've not been on holiday. Four nights, I guess it kind of counts. But it was, it was lovely. Mm-hmm. It was most of the wholesome uh, time away with Winnie's best mate, another one of our um, NCT sort of antenatal group couples and the parents live out there in Wales so we took full advantage of that and, and did very sort of wholesome things like go to soft play centres and sort of watch films yep. at night and go to bed early and, and that kind of thing and <laughs> by the time I returned for a family do uh, of my own or of Rachel's family on Saturday I was mm-hmm. pretty much back to work really so um, but that's alright, we, we, what do they say when you're finishing one holiday you should book the next one so we're going to go away in, um, in October and we've committed to that so I'm, I'm feeling okay about right. the, the huge amount of work we have over the next five or six weeks, it should be exciting.
2: When I was speaking to you on the phone earlier, I could hear Winnie in the background and all she was saying was, bluey, bluey, (laughs) bluey. is, Is, uh, Is this the stage of parenting you're at
0: now? It is. She's got lots of words. I think we reckon she might have somewhere between 100 and 200 words which is remarkable when you consider the little baby that you saw six months ago, but she's growing very quickly. Mm. She's actually graduated to the, the next room in, at nursery. She's from the little baby's room mm. to the not-so-little baby's room because she can kind of walk a little bit now. And we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, that she's yep. not quite walking on her own, but, but walking enough that she isn't, you know, she, she shouldn't be in the tiny baby room anymore. So it, it's, it's good that she has a passion in life. My passions mm-hmm. are pretty clear. You know what they are. Winnie's mm-hmm. passions are, are bluey. And she will insist on watching Bluey and she flaps her arms about when the music comes on. It's a, It's been a great part of it, watching her sort of consumed by these characters on TV. It's really nice, actually.
2: And if she's got 200 words, like that's a feature piece for the Daily Mail. You
0: know, yeah. She, could, she could yeah. be getting a day rate. Well, yeah, that's right. And I think some of the sentences that she comes out with are more coherent than some of those that get printed in
2: that <laughs> newspaper as well. So it's uh, fun. <laughs> An interesting thing that popped up this week, uh, and it's related to Australian politics in a way, your old stomping ground. Because you know, when you think about trade, you think about the name Truss. You think about <laughs> Warren Truss <laughs> did a lot of work on the trade front in Australia. Uh, Liz Truss, the trade minister in the UK, has appointed Ian Botham as the uh, the trade envoy, representative, special yeah. envoy, Barnaby Joyce style. I don't know to Australia. What is Lord Botham, uh, apparently, going to to do for trade between the UK and Oz.
0: Yeah, it was brought to my attention yesterday that when Botham became Lord Botham last year, that he made reference to the fact that he would make a contribution on on sport and matters of land, which are things that he knows about, that he wouldn't be, of course, negotiating a trade deal with Japan. Okay, but he might be negotiating a trade deal with Australia. Not literally, I know that's not his job, the trade deal's been done, (laughs) but the very fact that he's got that title, I mean, what a world, really. I mean... As Marina Hyde was writing today in The Guardian, I mean, it's quite the achievement to have taken a photo of your old boy and popped it on Twitter and now be in the House mm-hmm. of Lords and now have this kind of responsibility. It's proof that there are no limits. There, there really is no cancellation, mm-hmm. not truly, if you're big enough. <laughs> if, it, it, the world is big enough if you're good enough and uh, both of them were certainly good enough as a player and, uh, and been able to uh, parlay that into many other parts of uh, professional life and that includes now being the trade envoy to Australia.
2: So, fair play a- to and him. And as far as, as, far as trade... Transport goes, Ian Botham on aeroplanes in Australia, famously, you know, enjoyed some long-haul flights. I'm sure he did. to Perth <laughs> on occasion. So, look, the, the, we'll see how things turn out on that front. The 100 is done. All yep. of the wrangling over the 100 continues. I watched the Eliminators and the final. I was doing the live blogs on those four games. And now you're up to the quarterfinals in the T20 Blast, which I do keep thinking, like, maybe if they put all the money for promotion that they put into the 100 into the... T20 Blast, it would have the success stories that they've been able to talk about with the 100 with look how many people watched and how many people came and how many people saw it on television and like yes, all of those things could possibly have happened with other cricket that already existed, but there yeah,
0: we are. Yeah, possibly possibly, if you said that in some parts of the internet, you'd be very popular for saying that. I think mm. it's true that if the Blast received more promotional activity and if it was shorter and not such an unwieldy competition remember that every county plays mm. how many games? They play 14 games. 14 games each yeah. in the Blast. So 14
2: Yep. <laughs> It's an elegant draw. Fourteen against each opponent, you know, seven home, seven away. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, they stated. really
0: do. In fact, it might even be, I should know this, given I've been doing the blast for the last four years. But in any case, it, there's a lot of cricket, right? And it does become wallpaper after a while, whereas this didn't have that feel. This felt more like the Big Bash where there was a game yeah. a night, you know, whether it was on free-to-air television or not, there was a, a kind of an understanding that this was a, a thing, that it was appointment viewing, right? Well, at least that's what they're going for. And the women's games as the curtain raiser, now they weren't a curtain raiser, to diminish what they were but that's essentially the role they performed they were in the afternoon the men's games were in the evening they had quite nice rhythm when you got a chance to kind of plug in and watch and it built to a A final with a few characters that people were following closely. They released Mo and Ali from the test squad to play uh, in the final, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure will come back to bite them if he gets out swinging first ball uh, in the test at Leeds this week, but be that as it may. And, yeah, and, look, the the competition might be over, but the stoush continues. So there was a, a story in the Guardian today that Ali Martin wrote about executive bonuses and remuneration for some of the senior execs at the ECB, which directly falls into that slipstream. It shouldn't, but people inevitably draw the conclusion that, well, if cricket's stuffed... And we need the hundred, and we, you know, have lost all this money. How can it be possible yeah. that executives are being paid handsomely? Now, I don't think it's as straightforward as that. I think you need to pay. Sizeable salaries in order to get talented people to administer cricket. You know, we've got an interview with Nalcon coming up later on when he says a similar thing uh, about Cricket Australia. So I don't think it's quite as simple as adding two and two together and, and reaching four there. But, you know, the point stands that there is a lot of, uh, and as Henry Moran said to us a couple of weeks ago, there's a lot of distrust out there right now
2: mm-hmm.
0: between different. Parts of the cricket landscape, and that's unfortunate. But yes, there's still tons of cricket left. There was a, a tweet that went out from the 100 account, the official account, uh, when it was all over, saying something like, What will we ever do? We have to wait an entire year till this returns. And the natural on like we're the middle of a test series between India and playing yep. England over here. You know, the blast. Pointy end is about to arrive. Likewise, the, the race to Lords or the race of September in the county championship in the, in the divisional set, which is starting, I think, next week. Yes, next week after this test mm-hmm. match. There's eight limited overs internationals between New Zealand and England being played over here, three T20s and five one-dayers. So there is so much cricket to come this summer. You know, it, it didn't end because the 100 finished on Saturday night. So it, it's about, I suppose, merging those threads and hopefully finding a place for all of these competitions to coexist in summers to come.
2: I would also make the point with paying large salaries to talented people that there are an awful lot of people on large salaries who are not at all talented but still get the large salaries. Uh, you can, I'll leave it up to our listeners to identify which ones are which. It's not
0: about, like, whether people are talented now and get, it's an incentive structure, right? I mean, if you want to get the best people to work in cricket. And why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we want to get the best talent available to work in cricket? It has to be more than just simply people that want to wear a lanyard and take selfies with celebrities, right? Because like at some level, as cricket fans, as sport fans, it's kind of an addictive Mm. thing wanting to be in the mainframe of sport. I mean, I'm sure that partially informs our own experiences. We wanted to be part of it. It's something that we were passionate about. And in turn, we were willing to work for very little money early on. That doesn't Quite translate through to people making decisions about multi million dollar budgets week in, week out, allocation of scarce resources, mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. You want talented, experienced, credible executives stepping up, and that means you've got to pay yes. them well. Bit of a diversion, but you know, just a point worth making.
2: Indeed. Uh, New Zealand women have arrived in the UK, is that right? They're gearing up. Yes, they
0: have. Uh, Susie Bates made runs yesterday in the warm up game, the first warm up game. I think they played a 50 over game against England A. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, yeah, the point is that Susie Bates, who has, uh, oh, gee, what, four or five serious injuries in the last Mm. two years, Jeff, Something like that. It's one thing after another with her. But, yeah, 34 years of age, I reckon Susie is now. And, yeah, exciting that she's coming here, fit, back in form, start of an eight-game series that begins this time next week with the T20s. Yeah, great to see her back.
2: Uh, Yorkshire in the news uh, for all the wrong reasons, as they have been for a while, the pretty strange weak statement that they put out after their supposed internal investigation about racism at the county, uh, the issues that were raised by Azeem Rafiq, we're going to come back to that in a, a future app where we can yep. look at it properly and in depth rather than trying to rush through it today, and there's still quite a bit more on that story to come out, but it is moving pace. It is. Azeem Rafiq is furious with
0: Yorkshire, who apologised, but... I mean, the statement, uh, you know, uh, sometimes I'd rather organisations didn't bother with statements because there's so much, there are so many caveats and so much compromise with the written word. They want to get it so right that you end up getting it so mm-hmm. wrong. And I think this is an example of that. So I think we should do a full episode on Azim Rafiq. And I actually think that we should fold into it what's going on in South Africa. The open-ended statement that Mark Boucher issued a couple of days ago, which didn't directly address the allegations, but did as best as I can understand from the reporting, did accept a degree of culpability for what happened with players in the dressing room with him when he was a player. Of course, now he's the head coach of South Africa. So a different layer of scrutiny Mm. being applied to him than, than some of his former teammates. And there'll be a second statement where he has to address what's been put to him. So I think that it's worth us sort of shelving both topics in the short term in order to give them what they deserve, which is proper focus from, from our podcast, When the Time's Right. In a well, couple
2: Mark of weeks. Boucher played over 100 tests. And as we know, if you've done that, you make a great coach. The, the, them's the rules. <laughs> I don't write the rules, but, but that's how they work. Uh, the next England-India test will be starting, I reckon, probably three hours after this episode comes out the way things <laughs> go so this could be the preview episode for that test match but it's not really because we've got too many other things to do david milan is back mark wood is gone will ashwin play for india probably do they do an ashwin and shuttle Tucker sort of switch up in order to strengthen the batting a bit uh, they can't really drop any of their quicks because they're all bowling so well India
0: yeah Ashwin's been doing his own media again on YouTube I fucking love the bloke he's so good uh explaining how he was um oh and Coley said this by the way Coley said uh, at the toss last week they had a squad of 12 ready to play but Ashwin uh per his um his own platform uh was like basically ready to play as they were tossing as mm-hmm. I understand it and was told no you, you won't be playing we're going we're to go with the four quicks based on on the weather but uh, I'd be Staggered if they go into a test match It's meant to be really nice weather here Over the weekend Can you imagine playing an entire test match In in decent heat Headingly without a spinner. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know Judea's a spinner and he did a good job as a holding bowler at Lords, but your best spinner, I, I just don't see it happening. I, I think they'll have to find a way. Mm. And I'm looking forward to making the daily show again, Jeff. They have gone bananas uh, when we were working on them uh, last week during the Lords test. So um, hopefully we can have a similar level of traction this week, both on the podcast feed and on YouTube. We'll make them about, if we have our act together, we've usually filed them within about 40 minutes of stumps. Mm-hmm. So they tend to get up about, yeah, between 60 and 90 minutes after the close of play, both on YouTube and then subsequently in the podcast feed. It
2: definitely helps to have a tense end of day five finish for a test match because they can they can be very one-sided at times or they can just have three <laughs> days out of five of rain, but that sounds like that won't be the case for the Leeds test. No. And we've seen some pretty good tests at Headingley, so fingers crossed for that. We are going to go to this interview with Melcon about Justin Langer, but I think I've got to shake things up in the order a bit. For reasons that will become clear very shortly, I think we've got to bring Nerd Pledge forward in the show, Adam, if if that's all right with you. Okay.
0: You're calling an audible, as they say in American football. <laughs> is, that, I like is that a this. thing,
2: an audible? It is. It's when the quarterback decides
0: to, and this will, this will expose my lack of knowledge mm-hmm. about a sport that I did play briefly as a teenager, where the quarterback decides, having seen the the formation of the defence, right. to change the play that they've agreed on in the huddle, and there's a code that he will yell out to right. his offence. It's almost blank slate. Yeah. No, change your play. Here's the new play. Be ready to roll. Oh. So you're doing that right now. You've, okay. you've changed the run sheet on the go, and it sounds like we're about to do some nerd I play. Th-
2: I when they did an Audible, it was when the quarterback tries to advertise an audiobook service to everyone on his team, and he's like, have you guys heard about the great deals that you can get at Audible? Hey, Audible. Have you, have you,
0: it's, it's, I, I don't want to turn into an, advertisement, an an advertisement for Audible, but Audible's quite good.
2: Have you, have you used it? I haven't. I read books. You know, I like reading. I've never got into audiobooks. I suppose I listen to podcasts, but, which might not be entirely dissimilar, but look, Audible gives money to every other podcast in the world. Give us some money. We're a podcast. People listen to us. Give us some money. Audible. We just talked about. Uh, you I see. I see.
0: I see during the week that on the Audible charts that Miles Jupp, listener to the Final Word and, and cricket writer in his own right, has a book right towards the top of the Audible charts, which I've bought. So, yeah. hello, Miles. And at some point, we'll probably get you on the show to talk about your cricket and other things.
2: Miles, advertise your book on the show. Give us some money. <laughs> the the, point, <laughs> the underlying thing is give us some money, um, which I suppose could tie to Nerd Pledge in some way, or as we like to call it, Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's a game. It's a reverse quiz. We played this game with people on our Patreon page. So here's how it works. We need to fund two shows a week and people help us do it. They send us contribution, but they don't send us a normal amount. They send us a very specific amount of whatever currency they choose because it relates in some way to cricket and we have to figure out what the number means. For instance, the number this week is from David Whiteley and it is $8.50. Okay.
0: So David's number, just scrolling through the page here, does come with a clue. My number doesn't relate to the monthly figure. It relates to an end-of-year total that would be 102 asterisks. So he's got here indicating that I intend to continue my support. That's quite clever. As regards to a clue, if someone was planning to make a film about this, the player in question would probably be stoked if it was called A Star Is Reborn.
2: <laughs> now, I need to I need to make clear once again, because people will doubt this. I do not mess with the order of the numbers of Nerd Pledge. They come up on the show as they come in uh, with a couple of administrative things for, for double headers and getting new numbers onto the show and so on. This number came onto this episode of the show in the natural order of things, because I hadn't solved it yet. I didn't know what it meant. I just had the number in there. And it just so happens that this was the episode of the show in which we have a long conversation about Justin Langer. Now, 102 asterisk, 102 not out in cricketing terms, and a star is born, that being the song from the movie that Justin Langer was completely obsessed with and went around singing all the time as per the documentary that got made about the Australian cricket team. So 102, not out, and Justin Langer, I didn't even have to look this up. I know what this means. I watched every ball of it. Uh, 2001, at the Oval, the fifth test of the Ashes when Justin Langer came back into the Australian test team. Hence, a star is reborn as per David Whiteley's clue. Now... Langer was on the uh, the 2001 India trip, uh, was batting first drop, as he'd done for most of his test career. Didn't go too badly. Um, high score of 58, lower score of 19. The rest were 20s or 30s. Went okay. Ricky Ponting, on the other hand, had a horror series. He made naught 6, naught naught and 11. And I happen to remember that when he made the 11, he got dropped on naught twice before he got to 11. Uh, so it wasn't going too well in India. But the Australian team management decides that One player is the future in ponting and Langer is the past, and as a, an Australian first drop, you need to be making more than 30 or so. So, Punter gets pushed up the order to number three when they get to England. Damien Martin comes in at six, really because they want to get Martin in the team, but they yeah, want to yeah. give him a bit of breathing space down the order. And Ponting has a very ordinary start in England. He goes 11, 14, 4, 14, 17, and then he bangs out 144 and 72 at Leeds, speaking of. 20 years ago,
0: 20 years ago this week. Was it? And he's away. I saw Butch posting about it. Butch had a... Oh, yeah. Obviously, because the star of the show there, yeah. he, he, there was a montage made up. He goes, Jesus, 20 years, bloody hell. <laughs> so, anyway, there you go. Push on, please.
2: Montage, montage, even Rocky had a montage. <laughs> so, Ponting's locked in at number three. He's not going anywhere. But at the same time, Michael Slater goes off the rails. He had the weird stuff in India when he was losing his rag over Rail Dravid not walking when Slater thought he'd taken a catch that was a bump ball. He made 77 in the first Ashes test in know one but didn't make much thereafter. And then he, as far as I remember it, he missed the bus to team practice or to get to the game one morning during the fourth test, something like that. He overslept and wasn't on the bus. And as a punishment, they said he's out for the fifth test. And as it happens, that was the end of his career. He never, never got back. So Langer comes in as an opener. And it's really a stopgap position for that one test match to see how he goes. But he makes 102 not out. And he's not out because he retires hurt because he gets bashed in the head for the seventeenth of mm. thirty-four times in his career. Steve Harmus, was it or was he going around that early? No, maybe it was Andy Caddick.
0: No, that test match. Well, that oh one. Yeah, I know that. I, I know that there. Jimmy Allman. G- Jimmy Orman definitely played. Darren Goff played. Phil. Tufnell played his last test match. Yeah. So it would have been... I reckon it's Caddick, Goff, Ormond, Tufnell. That's yeah. my guess Is the question. I think
2: Caddick was the one who hit him in the side of the helmet and Langer was bleeding, got mm. cut by the grill and retired hurt. But he was 102 not out when he did so. That was his first big 100 partnership with Matthew Hayden. And they went on to have 100 partnerships in their next six test matches or something like that. Never looked back, stayed an opener until 2007, at which point he got into the coaching caper. And, and as it happens that leads into the next bit of the show.
0: Beautifully done, Jeff. Yes, I remember that test match. I was living in the States at the time Mm. playing American football, as I mentioned before, actually, around that part of the year. And I remember staying up really late in order to watch or listen to. Actually, it was listening... I don't know how they... Did this? I don't know how this was possible, but I definitely listened to the radio and was uh, tuning in to uh, hear Mark War's because at the time I was quite mm-hmm. consumed with the idea that he would, you know, retain his spot till about age 42 or something like that. But no, the hundred that War makes, which. It was kind of like his last great innings for Australia. Steve Waugh makes the century after returning from deep vein thrombosis and ends up kind of with the naked bat, no stickers on it, waving it to the crowd, laying on the floor after being nearly run out for 99, bringing up his 100th run. Mm-hmm. I think Steve goes on to make 150, 150, right. 150 right. And then Not Mark's I out think for about
2: one hundred and twenty. Yeah, yeah. Mark was yeah. out so galloping down on. the wicket, trying to smash. I think it was Caddick again, trying to just it, it, pu- it swing was, him over mid wicket.
0: Yeah, it was. I think it was Goff. So what he after he passes one hundred, walk tees off, and he pops Tufnell into the, um, mm. uh, well, into what later became the ACS, Down, I'm not sure what it was called at that time. Uh, and then I think he might have right, made room and smacked um, uh, smacked Jimmy Ormond in that direction. But they bring that Goff and knocks him over. But I argued subsequently that Mark Wall should have retired after that test. It like, doesn't get much better than that. He's 21st hundred. His average was above 43. He'd won the Ashes again for like the eighth time mm-hmm. or something ridiculous. And after that, the last year and a half or whatever it was, turned out to be quite a modest period of his career but no it was an exciting way for it to end and yeah Glenn McGrath cleaned them up didn't he to finish the series and a comprehensive finish uh, but yeah the Langer storyline was an important one overtaking Michael Slater who started the series really well I think that 77 you referred to was it 16 in the first over maybe yeah, 18 like in the first that. over yeah he really went nuts. And then I think they made a decision that they thought that longer term that they really wanted to get Langer back in and Martin couldn't be dropped. Martin was established.
2: and well, Martin was making hundreds at that another, point in that series. Yeah,
0: yeah, and that was the start of another sort of regeneration of that era.
2: Mm. So, David Whiteley, because you're the nerd pleaser on this show, you get to give away a slab of Brick Lane beer. You can give it to someone in Australia. So, that could be you if you're in Australia. If not, it has to be someone who you like in Australia, uh, Brick Lane. They make beer. You would have heard about them off the top. The One Love Pale Ale, uh, the Backyarder. Easy Session Lagers And many, many others They've got some very fancy beers as well Some sort of Belgian style stuff And all <laughs> kinds of Oppa, Belgium style wah, wah, wah. So, yeah Woodstock uh, uh, Not Woodstock Brick Lane Bricklanebrewing.com.au uh, you, can, you can check out their work Woodstock <laughs> make cricket bats Woodstock Yeah, Woodstock make the 660ml cans You <laughs> get when you're 16 years old And the,
0: the, the bourbon and coke cans Brick Lane, uh, yeah. on the other hand Make a range of beers Including the low alcohol Option. Mm-hmm. I know Jay in in the voiceover off the front mentioned this over the last couple of weeks that there is more demand for low alcohol beer than ever before. So uh, Bricklane have been equal to that task and, and made one of their own. So yep. you can get your, get yourself part of that. And yeah, as we've mentioned in the past, we love working with Bricklane because they are fundamentally good people trying to do good things. Whether it be the resources they use to make the products, the staff they employ, the environmental practices to make sure they they emit as few emissions as they can on the way through. Mm-hmm. So if you can. Visit them at Queen Victoria Market or they're in Dandenong South to get the, the draft version of what they're doing or pick up some cans in the local bottle shop and, and follow them on social media.
2: Tag us in uh, and let us know that you've got yourself a Canterbury of brick Lane. And uh, if you send us a nerd pledge, you can give someone a case. Uh, you have a very good chance of doing that. Maybe like a one in eight, one in seven chance, depending on the week. Uh, no, two, <laughs> two in seven, two in eight. The, I so mean, in seven, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. better than one. That's twice as many as one. So send us a nerd pledge. You go to patreon.com slash the final word. You send us a nerd pledge. That helps us make the show, and potentially you get a case of 24 brick lanes. Sounds pretty good. Right, we're going to move on into our first feature interview of the show today. Next up, Malcolm Conn. It's the final word. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, and uh, we're very pleased to be joined today by Malcolm Conn, who has uh, jumped over the fence a couple of times in the last few years. Uh, Obviously, a journalist for decades, uh, went and worked in cricket uh, media administration for a number of years, and now has hopped back over the fence. Uh, Maybe we'll start there, Mel, with getting back into the journalistic fray uh, and and how it feels to be back in the middle of it.
3: Yeah, look, I'm really enjoying it. I'm sort of obviously grateful for the Sydney Morning Herald to give me the opportunity to be, Chief Cricket Writer, and after six or seven years working in cricket with Cricket Australia and Cricket New South Wales in a joint role, it's, it's quite an eye-opening at times. You uh, realised how much hard work goes in by so many people to, to make things happen, and uh, you really appreciate the passion that they have for cricket and the, the long hours they work during summer. So look, I'm really uh, glad I did it, but I feel like cricket writing is my calling, and so It's great to be back and uh, I think I've lost a few more friends over the last few weeks, but I didn't have many (laughs) anyway.
2: It's an interesting position that you find yourself in because, you know, suddenly the story is about the coach of the Australian cricket team, the relationship between Justin Langer and his players and there are lots of things that you were privy to being on that side of the fence that it must be tricky trying to work out what you can write about what you should write about you know what you have a responsibility to say what you have a responsibility not to say when you've been approaching this as part of your job for the last few weeks.
3: Well yes that's right and um, particularly a piece I wrote last week a sort of a first person piece uh, during 2019 when I toured with a team at various stages sort of on the team bus in the team hotel in team meetings and then around the team sort of during the World Cup for, for, for stages, during the, the 2019 Ashes, and then a, a 2020 series against Sri Lanka and Australia in 2019 that everyone's forgotten. So it's uh, been a, a really interesting sort of... Uh, it was an interesting time, and, and you obviously saw and heard a lot, and, and I'm certainly determined not to give away uh, any state secrets, but I just thought in, in that first-person piece that I did write that uh, I could give what I thought were a few fairly trivial incidents uh, just to highlight the, the tension or the stress around uh, Justin Langer and his coaching. So, it, yeah, you're right. It is a fine line. It's a grey area. There's been sort of quite a bit of feedback one way or the other about whether I should or I shouldn't have done it. i had a lot of journey I was, of saying, uh, I, I, look, I wouldn't have done it, but good on you for doing it. I really enjoyed reading it. So it, uh, it does put you uh, <laughs> in an interesting position. <laughs> but um, I, I think that... As long as you don't give away state secrets, I think that uh, it's fine. And I thought it was really important as the, the, the bubbles were building up around the, the cauldron of uh, Justin's coaching again, that uh, people were given some perspective about what it was like. So a few trivial incidents. I hope uh, we're able to highlight that.
0: Yeah, I was going to come to this later on, but I suppose now we're here, we might as well flesh it out a little bit. So the piece that you wrote um, did kind of make you part of the story. And and I suppose given you've been the one narrating the story for your entire career and then on the other side of the fence controlling the story, suddenly you kind of are the story in this tornado that was uh, the coverage of of Justin Langer's travails over the last couple of weeks. How did that feel for you, uh, having been usually the one writing it, suddenly being the one who everyone wanted to talk about?
3: Well, it was. It, it's a bit strange, but I, I felt it was. Uh, it was a story about Justin Langer and his coaching. It was just done from a, an insider's perspective, I suppose. In terms of you got to see and hear things that that other people didn't get to see and hear. So, I didn't really think it was about myself. I just thought it was a, an opportunity for me, to put forward some of the sort of inner, inner workings that might have painted a bigger picture for people to understand uh, why all this fuss was taking place.
0: And in terms of the. The criticism that's that's sort of come your way as part of that, that you had a responsibility to your previous employer, but also to your existing readers. And I suppose the other idea that a lot of people finish up in cricket as players or administrators or coaches and often will write a memoir that that details all of this, that what you have done isn't miles away from that. Is that how you've seen this uh, in response to the criticism?
3: Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, every time a, a prominent player retires, they write a book and then in, in many cases, I've covered that players' entire career and sort of lived it daily, and yet I find out reading the book how little I actually know about what went on. So there's certainly <laughs> a lot in those books that uh, other people don't know. Now, a lot of people might say, oh, they're trivial or they're not giving away state secrets or... Or whatever, but I just think that it's one of those things that that's what people want to read. I mean, clearly the, the, the readership that that story got was far more than I've got in the few months that I've been back in journalism and, and sort of one of the biggest on the paper this year, I think. So it shows that people do want to know about the inner workings. That's why cricket books from prominent people sell and that's why it's important, if you can, I think, to offer some sort of a, a view of the inner workings if you've got that privilege.
2: So, Mel, can you take us through the story a bit, the Justin Langer story uh, from the top? Because we're starting back in... January when there's uh, the, the reporting by Chris Barrett and Andrew Wu in the SMH saying that players weren't happy with the way Langer had gone about it. Then there were the behavioural reviews or whatever they called them into the way he'd gone about his job. And that was supposed to be put to bed a few weeks ago as the teams were heading off to the Caribbean. The spin was all about, oh, everybody sat down, they've had a chat, everything's out in the open, everything's good now. And then, weirdly, sort of within a week or so, Langer's public approach was saying, oh, I haven't changed anything, I don't think I've done anything wrong. And suddenly we were back into the the story being a problem again um, and and the way that he's gone about his job being a problem again. What has started to happen over the last few weeks um, from, from someone who's been following it very closely?
3: Right. Well, it's something that's been going on for a long time. I mean, not long after Justin started uh, back in uh, 2018, he was a pointer in May 2018, you started to hear sort of stories coming out about, gee, we've gone from one extreme to the other. We've gone from Darren Lehman, who might have been a bit loose, to Justin Lang who's like an overwound spring. And at that stage, I wasn't taking much notice because I thought, You guys have made a mess of things in South Africa with Sandpaper Gate. Mm -hmm. Uh, The team hadn't been performing all that well. The behaviour was poor. You need some discipline. You need some values. You need some strong leadership. And uh, I thought Justin would bring all those things. But it's just gone on and on and on. They had the first uh, Ford review, which was supposed to be sort of an integration of Smith and Warner. There was comments made around that there 's uh, on the two thousand and nine ashes tour that I was on and various other sort of series in that on that year where I helped out. There were certainly conversations going on then the, the latest Ford review after the India series there was more conversations going on then the players are sort of claiming that they sort of they said exactly what they felt and um, and then again we had that you 're right that sort of love in, I suppose you would call it before these this coming tour uh, or the previous tour just gone of, of the West Indies and Bangladesh, where they had the, the big meeting uh, at, in the Gold Coast, and apparently there was a bit of a truth session, and very interested to see Aaron Finch, the one-day captain, who's usually a pretty sort of straight sort of a guy, pretty private sort of a guy, come out and say that Langer received some confronting feedback. So for him to say that publicly, uh, on the verge of a tour, um, I found it was quite extraordinary, and it just showed, the, I think, the depth of conversation and the depth of frustration of this was just going on and on and on so that uh, when the teams come back, uh, we hear that um, Justin Langer's had a a run-in with a journalist after Gavin Dovey, the team manager, has had a blow-up with him. And in isolation, it's nothing. But I think it might have been one of our colleagues, uh, Crash Craddock, or Peter Orrott might have been, actually, who said that it's like a series of parking tickets. If you get enough of them, you go to jail. And it's just just one incident after another that just, just shows the... the the tightly wound up sort of micromanager style of Justin and there was the big feedback or one of the parts of the big feedback from those most recent tours was support staff where there's supposed to be this structure put in place. Justin's got extra support staff now. Uh, You've got some really good support staff like Andrew McDonald, like Michael DiVinuto, uh, done a fair bit of coaching and and are well regarded and they're supposed to be more hands-on. Justin's supposed to be sort of taking a step back at, at times as the head coach and and uh, getting out of the player's face a bit and letting, you know, the, the assistants sort of uh, take it from there at, at various times and yet he's sort of, you know, regardless of what's been agreed, sort of walking back in again and sort of getting all hands on and people are saying, well, hang on, what are we supposed to be doing? So it's just one of those things that sort of, it's, it's like, I guess, when you go on holidays and you stay at a dodgy hotel and there's people say, oh, what was it about the hotel? And you can't pick one thing, but there's probably 20 different things that were really annoying. And it just builds up. So uh, that, that's where we've come to now. Where, And the players were just getting sick of the fact that they weren't being listened to. They didn't know who they could go to. And so we ended up in a, with our, uh, Wednesday of last week an emergency meeting between the chairman, Earl Eddings, and Chief Executive Nick Hockley from Cricket Australia and the three in the leadership team, Tim Payne, the test captain, uh, Aaron Finch, the one-day captain, and then Paddy Cummins, the vice-captain of everything, trying to sort this out as we're going into a 2020 World Cup and an Ashes year, sort of probably two and a half years after the rumblings had actually first started.
0: Yeah, so it felt like the stories you referred to there, plus underperformance in the Caribbean and Bangladesh, sharp focus on that, get back to the country. And this almost like extraordinary step of CA having to pop a statement out at half past six at night or whatever it was to uh, to keep the wolf from the door, all the speculation. I think your piece, your first person piece was published that morning or it was being published that day or whatever it was. And there was so much brewing that they felt the need to pop a statement out, which bluntly looked a bit rushed. I mean, you know, a random capitalization, a stray apostrophe. It felt like something that got pushed out the door at five minutes to midnight just to kind of, make it clear that they weren't going to sack him, that the Ashes were coming up, that the World Cup's coming up and all the rest of it. Then the powwow you referred to later in the week, the emergency meeting, so it was reported with the leadership group that Langer was brought into later. It doesn't feel like, despite best efforts from administrators, that this has been launched yet. It feels like the the conversation is still a bit of a a a watch this space day to day.
3: Well, this is like sort of... uh putting a Band-Aid on a geyser, really. I mean, they've known about it for some time, done nothing about it, and then tried to sort of jump in at the last minute. It's, it's almost they've tried to circumvent the players because the, the actual timing of that statement, that statement, my piece, I think came out online on the Tuesday night, ran in the paper on the Wednesday morning. That statement came out on the Wednesday late afternoon uh, right. Before they had the, not just before they had the meeting with the players. It was almost like to circumvent the meeting with the players to say, well, we're running the show here and we're going to put out a statement saying that Justin Lang is staying uh, before we meet the players. So the players are going, well, what's going on here? No-one else knew the statement was coming. You were talking to us. Couldn't you just have a conversation with us first and let us know what was going on? So there's, that wasn't a good start to trying to, to, to sort out the issues. And the statement itself... It basically said that uh, Justin Langer has done a really good job reconnecting with the Australian people, which is true. He, he came in after the... he's a, Look, Justin's got great passion. He's one of the players that I most admired in terms of how hard he worked to establish himself into what became an amazing career when there are times he looked just about finished. He's also been a great statesman to come back and after to pick up the pieces after Sandpaper Gate and then to sort of get that, the trust back um, from the public and to sort of get people to sort of around Australian cricket again, here's a father figure that we can trust, a statesman who's done wonderful things who'd run through brick walls for the, for the baggy green. So uh, that side of it um, has been terrific. It's just the, the, whole, the way the whole thing's sort of tended to unravel, I think, is uh, derelict on Cricket Australia's part that more wasn't done sooner.
2: That seems to be the key part for me, and this was, uh, Sam Perry wrote about this in his Guardian piece as well, what you've just mentioned there, that the statement comes out before the meeting with the players. Now, almost, it seems like more of the source of the tension rather than what Langer is or isn't doing is the fact that for a couple of years the players feel like they haven't been listened to, and it's gone on for so long that it's started to really grate. For it to get to this point now where there's a, a major meeting being held, and a few hours beho- beforehand, there's a public statement put out to say that CA's already made up its mind about what should be done surely that's going to make your key players particularly shitty and it's going to put them offside, you know, leading up towards what's the next MOU period, the next round of player negotiations and all the rest of it. It doesn't bode well for that relationship between CA and its most important assets.
3: I think it bodes very poorly. I mean, I think preliminary MOU negotiations have already started. It it, uh, finishes in July 2022, so that's uh, less than a year away. So, on the one hand, you've got senior leaders and Cricket Australia coming together and calling an uneasy truce about something that has been going on for more than two years that, that they feel they haven't been listened to, that nothing's been done about. And then, you want, on the other hand, Cricket Australia want everyone to say, look, let's be partners. So it doesn't work like that, I'm afraid. There's going to be some pretty disenchanted players around uh, that whole thing.
0: And then yesterday there was the Usman Khawaja intervention on, on YouTube, which was a fairly sizable one. It, it, it drove a lot of the coverage. The Stabbed in the Back headline, which ran in a couple of different publications, how he depicted the player's response to Langer through the media and so on. How do you think that's influenced the story, having a player of Khawaja's stature almost go out to bat for Langer? He didn't entirely do that, by the way, but certainly uh, that, that's how you could, you could write up um, his commentary that he was in full support of the coach.
3: Well, I think he's certainly mellowed from uh, my previous dealings with him, if that's his attitude now compared to when I dealt with him previously, previously, and which obviously people can change over time. The thing that commented interested me most was that he was saying that uh, the players have been uh, stabbing the coach in the back. Well, Osman Kawaj was on the verge of being picked again to play for Australia. He, he could be next cab off the rank as an opening batsman mm. or even a middle order batsman. Australia needs two batsmen to come into this. Uh, coming summer. Now, you'd think that one of them will be Will Pekofsky, having recovered from a shoulder injury, but they're going to need somebody else, and that's somebody else, if Usman Khawaja starts well, having had a good season last season, uh, yep. could be him. Now, how do you think the dressing room dynamic's going to work if you've got a, a grumpy coach, trying not to be grumpy, uh, a senior player who's trying to walk the tightrope of say what he thinks but not hurt his chances of getting back in the team, and, and 10 or 11 players say, hang on a minute, you're the bloke that said we stabbed him in the back. It's going to be a pretty interesting dynamic in the dressing room, I would have thought.
0: Well, it strikes me as a very sort of unusual situation. I mean, I think Jared Waitley made this point on his program this morning. It's very modern, isn't it, that someone would do a, a first-person statement down the barrel of the camera on their YouTube channel addressing uh, questions that aren't necessarily being put to him. But I suppose it's pretty good PR. You can be cynical about this and say that he's backed in the coach at, at the very time that the coach needs someone to back him in.
3: Well, yeah, court, I th- look I, I don't think it's that cut and dried. I think he did say, say some some interesting stuff about how emotional JL was, uh, how it's, its biggest weakness, how it affects him. So it wasn't just a uh, – and here's someone who has been in the system and has dealt with it, has seen it. We've seen it on the doco. So it, it wasn't cut and dried. It wasn't like, say, a, a teammate, a former teammate and, and great mate like, say, a, an Adam Gilchrist or a, or a Matthew Hayden coming out and just trying to – so sort to of give it the the blanket, you know, leave him alone. He's a he's, he's a legend, and he's doing a great job. He was try he tried to balance it a bit, but uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Apart from making sure his name was back in the in the mix again, I'm not sure what it's actually achieved. Really, it gave us another day's headlines, I suppose. <laughs>
2: and then with with something like the Matthew Hayden statements and and other players who he's played with Adam Gilchrist has been in his corner as well, it's interesting Sam Perry noted this as well that it, it becomes almost a generational war thing where the the older players are basically saying, "Oh well, the young players are they're all coddled and they're too soft and they all want to get their own way and they should just tough it up and, and be like people used to be in in the old days." And this sort of idea that if you as long as you've played a shitload of cricket for Australia, then you can't be questioned you know, you must be good at whatever you do, but The fact is that when you look at coaching ranks, that's not the case. That's not borne out that way. You know, who are the really highly regarded coaches you mentioned earlier? Andrew McDonald and and Michael DiVenuto, you know, very fine cricketers, but they didn't have long established international careers. They put the lie to that idea that you must have been one of the best in one format to be one of the best in in another job. How do you see that sort of panning out? Is is that accurate to look at it that way as as basically an older generation being cranky at a younger generation because that's what older generations do?
3: Oh, I think it was a relationship thing. Both Matthew, and Hay- Matthew Hayden and Adam Gilchrist are, are terrific fellows and they're obviously close to JL. I mean, obviously Hayden had that wonderful opening partnership with him over sort of five or six years, which um, was one of the great sort of periods in Australian cricket. And, and Gilly was a, a, a wonderful player, obviously, and would have been close to JL in uh, Western Australia, where obviously, you know, having moved from New South Wales, he spent most of his time. Um, I think that there comes a period, and it's a difficult one, where former players have to decide whether they're former players or members of the media. And I think that sometimes there's a bit of a crossover. And I I was really interested in Adam Gilchrist's comments um, the day before I wrote my piece, actually, where he was sort of quite agitated about it and then uh, sort of came back probably a bit more considered the next day and sort of thought, well, Cricket Australia's either got to back him or sack him. Now, that was a mm. a major sort of moment in this current debate is that there's a bit of noise around and all of a sudden there's sort of someone as as pivotal as Gilly comes out and says, oh, Cricket Australia got to decide whether to back him or sack him. So it's, it's sort of... Or oh, there it that is, the, the, we've taken another step, Is it, it's come to that, that one of his great mates is sort of saying, and of course he's going to back him to stay, but at least he's put it on Cricket Australia to make a decision. So I thought that was a major moment and I thought that that was Gilly sort of showing that he wasn't just a great mate, that he was a member of the media and he was sort of showing that uh, we need to find out here in a balanced way what's going on.
0: Yeah, it felt as though in Gilchrist's case, he was willing to sort of have his initial almost emotional response to his mate being attacked and then step back from the flame a little bit and give a more considered answer, whereas with Hayden, it was sort of, you know, one non sequitur after another and, you know, half an hour of, it's hard to kind of stitch together a coherent sentence some of the time because he's so emotionally engaged in the Langer story, which he is at great lengths to explain in his interview on, on SCN, that that uh, you know he is like a brother to him and all the rest of it. So I'm not sure whether that necessarily helps the case for the defence when Matthew Hayden's out there uh, litigating it. But nevertheless, that, that's that's going to continue to be part of it. I also wonder like, how many more of these little stories might get out there via you and Daniel Bredig, who obviously has joined your stable there at At nine, for example, and and Andrew Webster, who was in his column on on Saturday writing about these these payments around the Amazon documentary. Again, it doesn't seem like a lot in isolation, but when you fold it into everything else, it's it's almost death by a thousand cuts.
3: Yeah, that's right. And this is a story that's going to continue to evolve. I mean, the the statement that uh, Cricket Australia put out, and then two days later, Tim Payne came out on his radio show in Hobart and said that, you know, we're all going to sort of head together with Justin for the next six months. Cricket Australia had said, well, he's, contracted, he's seeing out his contract, which is in the middle of next year. So it's a very finite time and it's going to come around very quickly. So the question is going to be asked, it's like the footy coach, are you going to renew his contract? Oh, we'll consider that at the time. Well, there have been play, coaches, I think Darren Lehman was one who had his contract uh, renewed well before time at various stages. So... It's to me. It's almost like they're trying to cut the, the particularly the cricket, the Australian uh, cricket board, Cricket Australia, are trying to cut themselves some, so, so, some room to sort of say, well, no, we're not going to bend to the players. He is going to see out his contract, but <laughs> I think that'll be it. So I mean, if we win the, and this is what players and support staff have been concerned about. They don't want to say we don't want to get to a stage where we win the Ashes four nil, and then Justin's contract comes up and it papers over all the cracks and he's a hero and. We just sign him up without even thinking about it or things go on as they are. They, they wanted us to, to sort of get let it be known sooner rather than later that this is a, a big issue that needs dealing with, It's affecting everybody, and we don't want it to be lost in euphoria at the last minute.
0: Especially when it's an Asher series that feels at this stage that, that, that it should be Australia's to lose. I mean, it's not as though we're going into a home summer uh, where we're thinking that England can be super competitive, like 10-11, for example. This has got far more sort of, dare I say it, 13-14 energy coming in, given how discombobulated England have been over the last couple of years.
3: Oh, absolutely. Their, their batting lineup is terrible, and you can sort of—it's a deck chairs on the Titanic sort of scenario with their top order. They've just got Sibley, who's clearly not dumped him. He's clearly not up to it, and they've brought in. David Milan, who has shown previously that uh, he's been very inconsistent and underperforming at that level. So they really don't seem to have anywhere to go. So outside Root and Stokes, if he tours, their batting's very fragile and Australia's fast bowling unit really should make a mess of them.
2: And for the most part, uh, a coach, in your sort of footy analogy, a coach who knows that the contract's not getting extended often doesn't see out the last year of it because, you know, if they're not going to be part of it going forward, then uh, there's almost no point in, in having them see out a final year or, or whatever it may be?
3: Well, it's going to be interesting to see where that goes because Justin's contract uh, finishes in July, I think, of next year and then when the Australian summer is finished, Australia's supposed to be going to Pakistan and we've got a Sri Lankan tour just in the, on the cusp in there somewhere as well, so mm. it's going to be interesting to see if they say okay, Justin goes through the ashes, does he, does he then go out in a blaze of glory and everyone shakes hands and says, oh, look, I've had enough, at someone else's turn and thanks very much. Because Justin's going to fight, in in everything he's done, Justin's fought to get where he's got and this is going to be no different. It's not like he's just going to say, okay, yeah, look, I've had enough, I'm out. He's not that sort of person. So there's going to have to be some sort of handshake deal done if he's not going to go on beyond the ashes and if he is going, going on beyond the ashes, it seems pointless sending him, starting to send him on subcontinental tours when they really should be bringing in someone new and fresh to, to pick it up then, not halfway through the year.
0: Is that where you think this lands? I mean, from your perspective, if he's gotten through this week and in all likelihood a successful Australian summer, unless something goes radically wrong, that... You know, basically, he does get renewed, and, and we and we go beyond this and look back in the revision mirror six months since, and say, "Wow, oh, well, he, he nearly hit the fence, but they won the Ashes four 0 You little beauty, two more years, four more years." Is that what you think actually happens here?
3: Uh, look, I don't know. I mean, my gut feel is I'd be surprised if his contract was renewed. Uh, having said that, I have no faith in Cricket Australia to make uh, long-term decisions in the best interests of Australian cricket. I think that. The people in charge, the carbell that runs the Australian cricket through the Australian Cricket Board, have, uh, have got themselves perched in the mirror most of the time, starting with the chairman, Earl Eddings. So I think that uh, rampant self interest comes first uh, and uh, the good of Australian cricket comes second. So I'd be very interested to see where all that lands.
0: It wouldn't be a Malcolm Con conversation without playing a shitload of shots, and you've done so right at the very end there. Uh, love it, Mal. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us on The Final Word. It's great to have you back in the press box, firing things up, and uh, looking forward to reading how uh, you cover the rest of this saga.
3: Terrific, guys. Look forward to seeing you in the summer.
0: Hi, I'm Natalie Jiminas, and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Woodstock Cricket. Sexy, sexy cricket bats, Jeff. Mm. They did the big rebrand over the winter, the new stickers and they did the Quinella for the top two bats in England at the start of the season. Mm. Lots of people are using them. You're hearing it more and more, Woodstock (laughs) cricket. And guess what? Because you're listening to the final word, you can get yourself 20% off on one of these gorgeous bits of cricket bat, TFW20, at the website you can see in the show notes and get Yourself a moderately priced cricket bat, which is comfortably one of the best in the world. That's
2: a pretty good deal. Not just the bats, twenty percent off gloves, pads. If they sell key rings, key rings. If they have a bat that you can open up the handle and it's hollow and it's full of premixed bourbon and coke, twenty percent off that. I don't know if they <laughs> offer that option, but they may at Woodstock. They're, they're you know, their ideas, people. At Woodstock, they should
0: merge. They might have the urge to merge. As I, I see that Melbourne have finished top of the ladder for the first time since 1964, and I think I've forgiven them. Yeah. For 1996, I think about. Gilly, for example, our friend Shannon Gill, who's been a great supporter of what we do, and of course part of the bad producer, Stable. And I think about what this would mean to him, and the way that they knocked off your blokes in the final second after the siren. To think that Melbourne had never won a game after the siren before. That's really? one of the great experiences in football. Mm-hmm. They'd never had that moment of winning a game after the Hooter, mm-hmm. and they did to, to go and finish top of the ladder. But I think I think the point here is, I have forgiven them for 1996. It's only taken me quarter of a century, but the fact that they voted themselves out of existence and we didn't and we saved the day. There's something I've held over Melbourne members and I think I'm cool with it yep. and I think I want
2: them to win the flag. It, it may be to do with the zero flags they've won since and the like 19 that, that you a lot won. But, <laughs> um, yeah, the, the after the siren, well Geelong makes a specialty of winning after the siren. They do it quite often but it, it was yes. it was nice because Max Gorn had lost a game against Geelong after the siren a couple of mm-hmm. years ago, had a, had a kick to win and missed it. So yeah, it was nice for him to get one back. You can't really begrudge that I suppose. I suppose it's pretty cool condescending to say you know you've got to feel good for them having a good year they had a good year once isn't that nice first time since 2000 <laughs> anyway good on them uh, we're here to talk about woodstock though they make cricket bats uh, you can get one for 20 percent off that's about all i need to say because they're they're the best bats going around they've won the awards for being the best cricket bats in the uk this year one and two so uh check them out WoodstockCricket.co.uk. all the range it's all there tfw20 get your discount G'day, guys. This is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Speaking of cricket, about someone using one very well in the Caribbean over the last few days has been Farhad Alarm. West Indies playing Pakistan in the Test match over there. And yeah, we've been big Farhad Alarm fans long before he got back into the Pakistan team. But You look at the record this guy has now. He's only played 13 test matches because he played three. Did more than okay. Got a ton on debut. Played three matches and then got dropped. Never came back for like 10 more years. Came back in England last year. Made a duck first up made a couple of low scores in his next match, uh, 21 and, and zero, not out. And since then, he's made 400s in eight tests. So he's got five tonnes in 13 tests for his career at the moment. His average is up past 47. And suddenly, well, he's vindicating all of those arguments that he should have been in the team for about the last 10 years.
0: Yeah, it's a great story, forward Alarm. And... You know, this test was was pretty well set up at the close of play on day four. I'm sorry to report that since we started recording, the Windies have lost two wickets almost immediately upon resumption, so Pakistan should close it out from here. They need seven wickets and West Indies need 256 runs on the final day at Sabina Park, but yeah, good series. It's a shame that it's a brief series, really. I understand and appreciate at the moment that touring overseas is tough, but this feels like the kind of series that I would love to go over four or five test matches, but not to be, but yeah, what a, uh, unfortunately i didn 't get the chance to discuss the thriller um, with you last week, you and Daniel did a lovely job of that, but if Pakistan do go on to close this out mm-hmm. it 's kind of to me anyway a shame that you know we get to this stage of proceedings, and there 's two test matches, then we go straight into the white ball stuff, and that 's no reflection on the white ball stuff i 'm sure that'll be great, but yeah it 's a shame that we, we can 't crack on and have more
2: tests i wasn 't expecting. The mat trap last week to end with Daniel having a menage a trois with Jeremy Coney. But these are the, the the kinds of things that that you can learn on the final word. So if you haven't heard that story, best to listen back. Daniel and Allcross will explain it much better than I can. But
0: it, well, yeah, the, the, seeing the two of them coming to work each day was quite something. <laughs> Jeremy often would just look at me and go, yes, it's, uh, it's been another another, another enthusiastic night <laughs> at the Norcross household. We were dancing last night. Then, you know, he'd go on and tell you what they were dancing to and then all the rest of it. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that he had such a fantastic last fortnight in the UK working with us and can't wait to welcome him back next well, year. And
2: you say that touring's difficult these days and so you understand shorter tours. But in a sense, given it's so difficult to get overseas and to get back... Maybe it makes more sense to go the other way and just play a play seven-test series, you know, just really lean in, play a couple yeah. of timeless tests, just say, all right, let's schedule one test this month and let's see how deep it can go, you know? Like, like why not, why not lean in? Once you're over, it's like taking the boat over from England in the, the 1920s or whatever. Once you're over, you may as well play 43 first-class matches against every opposition. You may as well play a Victorian side of 22. You may as well play whoever's willing to roll up, you know, smokers and non-smokers, because you already made the effort to be there.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe this should be something we should put, uh, that we should have longer test tours on the basis of COVID, not the other way around. I like the way you're steering that. But no, they've already had the white ball stuff, haven't they? They've played these games before. It's a shame, really, that Pakistan won't now go on to play Afghanistan, which is the the topic of our, our next conversation, Jeff. But yeah, that announcement came through not long before we started interviewing that... They just can't find a way to kind of get that series up. They've cited the, the mental health strain of Afghanistan's players, just how much they've gone through in the Man. last couple of weeks, the idea of them. I think they said in the statement they can't really put them into a camp now There's no commercial flights out of Kabul anyway But they can't put them in a camp now And then send them to Sri Lanka Which has a COVID problem anyway As the neutral venue to play Pakistan There was just too many hoops to jump through At this incredibly difficult time for the Afghanistan team We saw Rashid Khan um, last week Wearing the colours of the national flag on his cheeks And obviously quite a proud young man Match winning effort But it's such a trying time for him personally And yeah, it's difficult not to sort of, you know, think that this is going to be very tough yards in the short term. It might require even, Jeff, and we didn't have this conversation with Shadi necessarily, but the World T20. It's not far off. Seven weeks away? Yeah. I mean, are they really fielding a team at the World? I mean, they might. I know they've got permission to, they've got permission to, but there's a big gap between having permission to field a team and actually, you know... Yeah. getting
2: them there well uh, getting I, I, I them there know. is is the thing and the re- the real reason for this series cancellation is that there's no transport you can't you can't get out of Afghanistan at the moment so yeah. you know the country's airlines aren't flying there because they can't guarantee the safety of crews and you know it's so dicey landing in Kabul in the first place you've got the airport blocked off by gunmen and all the rest of it so that's not going to happen yeah so players who are in the country I, I'm not sure how they're supposed to get to the T20 World Cup. I mean, Rashid Khan was obviously affected by it. Towards the end of the 100, he was uh, starting to bowl some ragged games, which you rarely see from him, but why wouldn't you? Because he was trying to push on, but cricket would be the the last thing on his mind that that actually mattered at the moment. So Afghanistan's been such a story of joy, the way that team has sprung up in even less than the last 20 years, really the last 16 years uh, more so. And I think everybody who cares about cricket has, you know, their hearts have gone through the floor uh, it, it, seeing what's happening in Afghanistan. So we did want to get a, a more detailed picture of what's going on on the ground there. Shadi Khan Saif is a journalist who covers politics in Afghanistan and Pakistan and, and has done for 20 odd years and got out of Kabul last night at the time of recording on a, a Reuters flight that evacuated a hundred odd journalists from the capital. So we caught up with him a couple of hours ago and uh, here's that interview with Shadi Khan Saif. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins and uh, joining us today, having got out of Kabul last night, Shadi Khan Saif uh, has landed safely and it must have been a very eventful couple of days for you.
4: Yes, absolutely, Jeff. It was a roller coaster, to to say the least. Uh, We had um, at least four attempts at the airport just to get out, uh, despite having a valid visa, passport uh, and all the reasons to escape uh, the dangers that we were facing the imminent threats. But still, I'm sure many of your viewers and yourself must have uh, seen the chaotic and deadly images of the airport, the international airport, the only way out at the moment from uh, war torn Afghanistan. So last night was lucky night for me. Uh, After a couple of failed attempts, we made it out last night with a group of uh, more than 100 journalists and their families Uh, and their relatives and their friends, all of them attempted these couple of failed attempts with us. We uh, landed at the Islamabad airport and, uh, you know, the flight was not anywhere near normal flight. They were, uh, I mean, it it was like, I I don't know how to explain. Uh, We just landed and even the airport staff was surprised. They said, where did you guys come from? Where are your boarding Mm. passes? We had nothing, no boarding pass. No food on the plane. The toilet was in a mess because the plane was waiting for us. Our organization, Reuters organized this evacuation. I'm really thankful to them. So yeah, then we came to our place. We had a rest of a few minutes and here I am talking to you about favorite sport uh, cricket
2: in afghanistan and it must be i mean it's an extraordinary thing that reuters as an employer had to organize an evacuation flight and and to organize this so quickly um give us a sense of the last couple of weeks and and just how much the world turned upside down so abruptly
4: well uh Right from the mid of August, the last day of the first week of August, there were speculations that the state structure, the government in Afghanistan was about to fall apart because the Taliban were advancing in a speed which was unprecedented. Nobody had a clue about it. The deadline or the estimation that many people had in their mind was of a couple of weeks sorry, a couple of months that in a couple of months the Taliban will be in the city and then they'll start to uh, overrun it uh, either through negotiations or uh, fighting it out with the government forces but nothing like that happened it all happened in a minute in a matter of days on uh, on a sunday this sunday not this sunday the, the the one before the government just collapsed the president left the country fearing for his life and here we were with the Taliban ruling us within days. And what happened uh, What happened afterwards was even worse because people panicked, people frightened. They just rushed towards the airport and the airport was, there were no security forces there. The forces had either left the country or they just surrendered, fearing for their lives. And many people died. Some went on to sit on plane, uh, hoping to escape. In that deadly manner, they died. Unfortunately, that American military plane took off with all those people sitting on its wings and all over it. And, and things never improved. Things, things has not improved yet. Situation has uh, is still uh, very tense. People are in the same mood. They want to flee the country. Those fearing for their lives and their liberties, they are fleeing it. The Taliban have brought some order at the airport with the Americans and all the uh, NATO allies, but people's sense of anxiety has not improved. They are uh, in a desperate rush to leave, and that has has been causing a deadlock, a bottleneck at all the entrance points of the airport, forcing people with documents and legitimate uh, paperwork to wait anxiously for days. Our time just came last night after a wait of 10 hours right at the road in our buses. We just stayed in our bus for at least 10 hours. And this is after the three failed attempts that we were given uh, an entry uh, through uh, a lengthy negotiations of days.
0: In, in the context of such a, a desperate situation, it feels almost glib to want to talk to you about cricket. But on the basis that you write for the Wisdom Cricketers Almanac and report on Afghanistan cricket. I think there's been a lot of interest around the global game about what this will mean for Afghanistan and the game that is the number one sport in the country. It's such an amazing, remarkable story, which has been documented through, uh, through various films that have been made and pieces that have been written. And of course, Afghanistan rising to test status in 2017 was so widely celebrated. But now we've already seen one are cancelled. They won't be playing Pakistan next month. The statement that went out this afternoon that made it clear that the players wouldn't be in a fit state uh, to participate and, and also getting into Sri Lanka to, to play Pakistan uh, wasn't going to be possible. We've seen a, a change in chairman yesterday. Azizullah Fazli has been brought back into the role. Of course, he was knocked off at the end of 2019 after the failed World Cup. A lot of Uh, A lot of issues there internally, but he's now been brought back in keeping with the wishes of the Taliban who are now overseeing much of this. I mean, can you give a bit of a sense of just how acute the challenges are going to be for Afghanistan cricket in the short term?
4: Well, the interesting bit here is uh, that the interest among common people for this beautiful game has uh, not dropped. It is the public interest. It is the enthusiasm amongst all Afghans of all ages, young and old, they love the game. They've, they've, they've simply fallen in love with the game. And uh, that's what is driving the success. The administration, before the recent changes and even before that, right from the beginning, was never perfect. They always had issues with uh, issues you can expect in a place like Afghanistan. But the success never uh, reversed. Why? Because the interest is there, it is generating tel- uh, talent. Rashid Khan is phenomenal. The whole world knows him. Nohmat Nabi, you name them. There are a bunch of more stars coming because the interest is there. People love the game. There's a passion. They follow all commercial leagues played all over the globe. That is what is driving uh, the success of Afghanistan cricket. I would dare to say that it has nothing to do with the administration, good or bad, of the Afghanistan cricket board. It's the simple, raw talent, the interest, the enthusiasm that is driving the success, and it is still there. Uh, I hope it never reverses with the way things are heading, but uh, I don't see any eminent threats to that uh, enthusiasm going down. But administration, of course, it plays a part when you have all the funds and all the resources to control the domestic system and the international engagements. And selection and, you know, patronage of the players and promoting young talent, that does play a part. I'm not ruling it out. But the the basic reason so far for the success has been the, the interest among people.
0: What strikes me is that there was so much positive momentum over the last few years. Just last year, 25 central contracts were given out to afghanistan women uh, for the first time and there was that big cat they helped before that to find this talent and that's just on women's cricket alone uh, imran khan uh, when he visited from pakistan talking about the potential for bilateral tours into afghanistan and playing in pakistan i mean there was so much cause for enthusiasm about what might be possible in the short term uh, in terms of what might be achievable in the next five years which all seems to now be on pause do you think that now with the taliban back in charge that it'll be far more about taking stock and making sure the show kind of stays on the road rather than being necessarily ambitious about what might be possible in the short term?
4: I think they would, and they've already shown some signs about it. They would really try to promote the game. They would honestly try to promote the game. But the appointment of the new governor was there when Afghanistan saw its biggest disaster in its uh, international cricket so far. Afghanistan was doing so well before the World Cup. People were considering mm. it as an underdog with the potential to do, you know, to do great. But nothing happened. Afghanistan performed very well, but it lost most of its, its matches. And uh, just before the World Cup, the controversial appointment, uh, replacement of the captain, and the, the blunders with the selection—that is, to me, so far, the biggest setback that the uh, game of cricket has seen in Afghanistan. So. A diehard cricket, many diehard cricket fans give up on sports. They said their hearts are broken because of what the cricket board did with the team. So on one side, I think I'm positive that the Taliban will uh, try to promote the game. But the appointment of the new uh, chairman uh, looks like a very strange decision to me.
2: In terms of the Taliban promoting the game, is that mostly going to be about trying to use an international cricket team as a way to legitimize themselves as a government.
4: Well I think I think that's, that would be too ambitious. I think they're, they're, I don't see any prospects for that in in the short term because that can't be that way. It has to be the other way. They, have, they first have to get the international recognition and then they can invite and you know host international teams. They they can't do it the other way by you know inviting foreign teams and then seeking uh, recognition. But I think in terms of their domestic support, they need something positive to give it to the community. They need to show that they are not the Taliban of the past. They are not just about, you know, uh, praying and, you know, all these uh, religious aspects of their ideology. They would desperately want want to show to the nation domestically to convince the local population to, to influence them that they want life to move on with this some level of continuation of the past 20 years or so. And cricket is a major part of that experience that Afghans had in the past 20 years of relative peace.
2: So a lot of what you've written about and the the work that you've done has been about the place of women in society in Afghanistan, the likelihood of repression coming back. Uh, you you were writing only recently about repressive measures being taken against women under the previous regime that's just been swept away. And obviously, that's the major point of concern for everybody uh, looking at what might happen in the country over the next few months and then into the next couple of years. The position of women's cricket, Afghanistan didn't even have a, an international women's team playing under the previous administration. And as you say, the chances of that happening under a religious administration are very bleak. Where do you see this going over, say, the medium term of the next few years?
4: I see prospects of that simply dead. Uh, When I used to speak with players, with officials under the previous administration, they were struggling very hard to convince people within the board and uh, they were fearful of uh, going ahead with this idea. And that was despite the fact that Afghanistan uh, was having a uh, females football team pakistan was having uh, women in many other schools. but the problem with the cricket was that it was unable because the uh, the scale of uh, the game and the people following it was all over the country not limited to urban uh, few urban centers like like football in terms of international uh, teams that is uh, what i'm talking about so they were fearful of a backlash they couldn't dare to uh, come up prepare a team and launch it and send them to an international events or so, the best they could do was sign contracts with a few daring uh, young girls who were, who were willing to risk it because of their interest in the game and they couldn't move uh, ahead with that. So with the Taliban uh, coming to power, I, I, I simply see that project done and dusted.
2: The women who have signed those contracts and who were playing up until recently, do you think that there's a likelihood of reprisals against them or their families do you think they'll be in danger for having been associated with playing professional sport recently
4: well I hope not I hope not I desperately hope not and uh, that is something that we have to see it's a matter of concern and it would it would might uh, get uh, dangerous for them if they try to go ahead with it but I don't see any any prospects for them because Afghanistan does not have facilities where they can go and play on their own. They were playing in the facilities of the cricket board inside the arenas of the cricket board. Uh, so if officially those doors are closed to them, they have no way to go uh, and um, uh, uh, express their interest.
2: And the reporting on the Afghanistan team, especially in the last, say, two or three years, it's all been about the positives. It's all been upbeat. It's been talking about the uh, the growth of this of the current men's team of their potential into the future. The Taliban hasn't been mentioned a, even as a, a possible threat in any of the cricket reporting in in the last few years. Do you think were were we naive? not to imagine that uh, they might be returning to power at some point, given how tenacious they've been in in keeping themselves around as as a possibility to move in whenever the Americans moved out. Was that foolish of of cricket to be looking at uh, the optimistic side constantly and and not considering the alternative?
4: Well, well, that's the thing with the cricket. There are many other simple stories. Take the example of rivalry between India and, and Pakistan. It always infringes into the arena of cricket. In Afghanistan, there were uh, very focused efforts and they still all to keep the sports away from politics. The imminent threat of the Taliban takeover was always there and people were fearful about it, even in in the cricket world, but they never framed it and they don't see it as a direct threat to the game or to the cricket board. That's what I think has kept it safe so far. And the other thing is that it's a game that is loved by the nation. So I don't see any reason for the Taliban to be naive enough to go and counter it. And I don't see any 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 incentives for them. The only problem they might have with cricket is the female team. They, I think, should have, would have and might have no problem with the men's team. As I said, they would indeed like to promote it for their domestic popularity. Again, I would out of the appointment of the new chairman. If the board gets politicized, see, I'm referring to the the Mm. administrative and the political aspects of it, not the military aspect of the Taliban. If the Taliban overlook the political aspects of it and then the new leadership of the board starts making foolish decisions, that is something that can cause great harm to cricket in Afghanistan, not the military aspects of the Taliban.
2: Shadi Khan Saif, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, we're very glad that you've managed to make it out safely after what must have been a, a pretty terrifying few days.
4: Thank you very much. Glad to be with you. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word
2: with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Huge thanks to Shadi Khanse for making time to talk to the show, you know, 12 hours after landing in Islamabad, calling us from his hotel room there uh, and managing to stay so upbeat. I suppose the, the life of a journalist covering politics from hotspots, it's a, a much harder graph than anything that we do. <laughs> covering sport it sort of makes makes the rest of it seem like dilettantism in comparison but he's he's done great work to have been covering news there for so long and will keep doing so fearlessly uh, having made his way out of the country
0: yeah I've loved corresponding with him in the last few days and kind of getting a, a bit of a sense of what he's been going through I say loved it I mean I just enjoyed that he's been such a, um, that he is rather, such a positive sort of guy and obviously they've been going through the most dreadful time at the moment, but he's got the right disposition to get through what's going to be a doubtless an incredibly challenging time, I'm sure. Just one point here, which I didn't really address too well in my questioning, there was so much positivity around Afghanistan cricket a couple of years ago. I mean, yes, sure, there was the World Cup that didn't go well, but they kind of got, post-World Cup... I mean, you know, mm. they beat Ireland a couple of years ago comprehensively in a Test match. Well, they beat Bangladesh in a Test match And Chittagong. Mm. Remember, of course, which was a sort of a landmark yep. moment. They did have that change in administration. They changed the chair. They were talking well, they about. They beat
2: Zimbabwe recently. Beat Zimbabwe you know, recently. The, the yep. first Test double hundred um, yep. for Afghanistan, and yep. you know, had this had that amazing partnership with Asgar Afghan. In there, the the, the guy so proud he changed his name to the name <laughs> of the country. So why not? Well,
0: you know, and and all of this is going on you know, in the backdrop of COVID. And, and yes, they did have to have to have halve salaries last year. And that was a little bit chaotic with what happened to Lance Klusner and his uh, package and, and all the rest of it, which drew a lot of focus. But that wasn't unusual around the cricket world last year with, with revenue not coming in and a lack of cricket. But just last year, they were talking about a roadmap to hosting international cricket in Kabul within five years. I mean, that's obviously not going to happen now. You know, the fact that Imran Khan was so positive about the idea of trying to host bilateral series between the two countries. That's clearly not going to happen now, or at least not for a long time. The fact that in all of the coverage in the Almanac that I was reading through, none of it even mentions the Taliban. It's as though cricket was operating in a vacuum separate to the challenge that was clearly coming uh, with the withdrawal of troops this year and here we are like it's kind of devastating that one of the greatest stories in modern cricket if not the greatest story now will take a turn and yeah again super positive reflections there in the interview about what might be possible even under the Taliban given the popularity of the sport it's unlikely it'll go through a period of being persecuted as it was the previous time the Taliban were in charge and cricket was an absolute no-go well at least in a formal sense but yeah there are obviously now um, we're we're now in a very different part of this story and um, let's hope there's a there's a way that the game can continue to prosper in that part of the world because it yeah it's been a mighty tale so far and
2: the fact that as shadow Ugra was writing about during the week that women cricketers in afghanistan are hiding their kit and distancing yeah, themselves from having played the game because they can't afford to be linked to it because they might be in danger or they very probably would be in danger so
0: when this goes to and this goes to the change in administration right i mean we found out yesterday that the chair who got knocked off. He's now back again. And the, mm. the progressive chair, Farah and Yusuf azai who was pushing for more women involvement, he's now been jettisoned. I mean, you know, yeah. funny that. Someone yeah, who was pretty- pushing to get the game moving forward, talking about girls playing the game. He's no longer changing. You know, so look, not a lot of this stuff will be explicit and overt, but it'll be clearly identifiable in the weeks and months to come, I'm sure.
2: Absolutely. We will... Move on into the last part of the show. Just a little look at a bannerman, a cheeky bannerman, oh, yes. because we, haven't, we <laughs> haven't had a look at a bannerman uh, for a few weeks now. We were sent one by Andrew Nixon, a fine correspondent of ours, on the Bird app and someone who follows uh, associate and affiliate cricket extremely closely, sent us a note to say that uh, he just realised, he says, that Extras made a very good run at the women's T20 International bannerman in a recent match between Italy and Italy and Austria. Now, this is a, a match in which uh, Italy got bowled out for 73 in 17.1 overs. It's a phone number scorecard, as in everybody made single figures, except for extras. So the scorecard reads as follows. Four, naught, six, naught, six, seven, one, naught, eight, not out strong down the order, eight not out, one and naught. extras, 40, 40 out of 73, and that is, I mean, that's well over half. That's a, fitting, 55er. a 55er. It's a 55er,
0: f- 40 out of 73. 37 of those are wides as well, I should say, so mm-hmm. uh, yeah, um, sort of half the, well, near enough to, well, there it is half, isn't it? Half the runs scored there are, have been in, in wides, so... Just over, so yeah, that's not particularly flattering. I mean, they've done the job, haven't they? They've, they've mm. knocked them over for, for 73, but it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. But yeah, the question that Andrew put to us was that, would it count as a bannerman if extras got the job mm. done? And I think that I think that it probably would. I think we'd pay that. I think it would.
2: Yeah, I think it would have to. And, and if 40 extras came in 17 overs, that's better than two runs per over. So if they'd managed <laughs> to just to bat out, if they'd managed just to stay there, Blocking everything for another three overs, they would have had another seven or eight runs to their total. you know <laughs> like that shows you the value in, in batting out the overs. So that early 2000s58, yet, yet the worst sin in one day, cricket is not to bat out your overs. <laughs> got to bat out your overs. That, I think, takes us to the end of the show. It's been the final word. I'm Jeff Lemon. The other one's Adam Collins. We do this show twice a week we do this as the weekly show then on the weekend we do the the history show called story time where we talk about tales from the cricket past and then at other times we do daily shows as we'll be doing for the third test between england and india up at Headingley. thanks to brick lane for sponsoring the show and also woodstock cricket remember you can get sweet discounts look in the show notes Thanks to everyone on the patron page who sends us nerd pledges. They're the lifeblood, the reason this show can be made as often as it is. And if you want to sign up to the patron, you can also get on the Discord page there, which has everybody uh, who's on there, all our listeners, chatting about the cricket and having a good old time, even when we're not around, I think... We've just about covered everything. We're on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. Lots of other shows there. David Collins edits the show. And uh, we will be back with you on the dailies and on the weekend. Storytime. Signing out. Bye.
1: I had to go. Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at FinalWordCricket.com, including their most popular episode of the last 12 months, The Final Word with Marcus Stoinis. If you're new to The Final Word, I suggest you check it out. If you've been around for a while, but you missed it, you should also track it down. And if you heard it when it first came out, you are quietly nodding and thinking, yes, that was a special chat. FinalWordCricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at BrickLaneBrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.